This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of Quantization. Are they okay, the levels? Am I fine where I'm sitting and everything? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well. Do we need to talk a little bit into the more into the microphone? He's giving me thumbs up, says no, so I think okay. we're, we're good. And I think he's saying we can get started. Between July 2017 and April 2018, Art Gallery of Ontario exhibited Rippling, a visual experience of augmented reality intervention of a few classical paintings. This exhibition raised questions about augmented reality in the art domain and intellectual property, also inclusion in art exhibitions, how classical pieces can be translated, represented, or combined with new technologies. Is there a way in which we can make classical art more accessible? To find out more, we invited Alex Mayhew, the creator of Ribbling, and Colin Clark, artist and researcher, to our studio to talk about these questions. We also have a short announcement at the end of this episode. Well, should we start with introductions? Yeah. Kave says yeah, too. Okay. I'll go first, okay. and then and then uh, and then you can go. Um, hi, I'm Colin Clark. I'm an artist and an inclusive design researcher here at OCAD University in Toronto. My uh, research work is around multiple modes of representation, so how you weave together different forms of perception, sound, vision, etc. Uh, I do a lot of work with co-designs, moving past the sort of static modeling of people as. Uh, individual attributes or marketing research or or bits and pieces and rather ways that people can get involved in the design process as actual participants, as designers themselves. And so we look a lot at ways to, you know, get past the focus group or the workshop and, and get people who are going to use the software we build into the design process as full creative contributors. Um, and my art practice is both as a filmmaker or video artist and musician. I um, develop a lot of homemade uh, video processing and sound processing tools, mostly using the web in part because of a, an interest in the ways in which creators interact with each other at a kind of material level. So if yeah. I write a piece of software, what are the options for me to give it to you? Um, I could open source it and you could fork it and change it, but are there ways in which we can both create artifacts that are somehow linked or connected together so that we don't all have to sort of separate in terms of how we make things. And Alex Mayhew. I'm an artist and a designer. Recently, well, a year or so ago, we started a company called Impossible Things. Mm -hmm. And we're a bunch of artists and designers. And actually, we all have fine art degrees. But we do a number of projects, whether they're art-based or design-based. And the idea is that our art practice informs our design work and our design work informs our art practice. We, we specialize in augmented reality, mixed reality, but uh, a particular specialization in augmented reality. 
And we also have backgrounds in transmedia and game making, working in industry, doing very commercial projects, but also doing a lot of artistic um, projects. Ones that spring to mind would be a project I did for Peter Gabriel, which was Ceremony of Innocence, well, a long time ago, uh, which which won a lot of artistic critical acclaim. And uh, there was another project I did for uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company in MIT, which was basically visualising and working out interactive concepts for a game version of The Tempest. Uh So for quite a long time, I was in this kind of no man's land of being between kind of game and art. And uh, for a while, it was no man's land. There was very few people in that area and there was very little kind of activity or work. But the projects you picked up were very interesting. And now uh, with Impossible Things, you know, we seem to be under quite a lot of demand right now. It's Um, not a no man's land anymore. No, no. So we've just had the show at the... AGO, which is a show that I initially started uh, to get off the ground a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think, what we're going to be talking about yeah. today. Yeah. This is Season 1, called Signal, Episode 9, Classical Art and Augmentation. Should I explain a little bit about what the show is? Or Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to, to hear what ReBlink is. And I, I mean, I'm, I've been thinking on this podcast, so we're in, we're in a completely different medium from the one you work in, in that mm. here we're in a room with, with uh, only sound. So, so maybe... It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> it's a lack very, of computers. It's nice. No computers. It's quiet. Mm. But maybe think about ways in which you could describe what ReBlink is and does for those who are listening and... And can't see it right now. How can we evoke that in some in some distant presence? Sure. Yeah, it's definitely challenging um, talking about it because it's it's such a it's such a visual experience. Um, essentially, what we have when you walk into a, a gallery, you see a number of different paintings, and Reblink focuses itself on older works of art, and we're very much working in the convention of um, art intervention, uh, a little bit like Kent Monkman may do. So we take an existing work of art and then we respond to it with another work of art that directly references it but also kind of creates a commentary. Most intervention works of art are usually displayed in the same gallery, sometimes hopefully in the same room, but often the two works of art will eventually get separated and they may even live in different countries. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is creating an experience where they're, they'll always be linked together and they're designed to be actually viewed together in the same space. And we do that 
using technology that probably most people have heard of called augmented reality. Most applications of the most popular applications that people have heard of will probably be things like Snapchat or uh, Pokemon Go. Ours is slightly different to those, very different to those. <laughs> different how? Different in uh, the, I would say Snapchat and Pokemon Go is probably a little bit like fast food. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of fun, tasty, not very nourishing necessarily. <laughs> um, what we're trying to do is actually create an artistic, an artistic experience and using the technology to create an artistic experience. So what happens is you... Walk into the gallery, you see the original painting, you hold up your device, and this could be a tablet or a smartphone. Hopefully you've got your sound turned on, because sound is an important part of it. And as you lift up your device, you see the original painting, but then you see the screen kind of crackle as a new reality seeps in onto your device. And suddenly the painting that you're looking at through the camera is changed somehow. And what we're doing really is focusing on the theme of looking back at the past with a present-day lens. So we are creating modern-day references that somehow link back into the past. We also are turning some of these environments into, you know, the, the, the flat. 2D painting experience. We're turning them into some of them into 3D experiences, so you can actually see around corners or imagine that frame isn't a frame to a painting, but now it's a frame. It's a window frame that you can actually look around corners and see what's lurking on the left or right side. Yeah, and we're trying to use those spaces as part of the commentary too. So we hide little things in those spaces. Right. Was it's, that clear? Because it's still very hard to Yeah, I mean, I think explain. we should we, we should go through and maybe try to describe some of this, the, the, the pieces at, at some point. But it, it struck me when, when Kave and I went to see it that the viewer's perspective becomes the center point to the work. In other words, we always have a perspective and the painting's always going to frame the subject mm-hmm. in some way, but then your work, by virtue of the fact that you have a second frame, that you as the viewer hold up to the piece... And then again, that sort of 3D space that you've brought into that second frame so that as the viewer moves, they get to see a different angle or some depth on yeah, the, that's, the piece that's, that they wouldn't that's see. Yeah, that's very nicely described. Um, sometimes I describe it to people that, you know, like, what, what is it? What have we created? Is it is it the thing in itself or is it the original? Is it two works of art? Or really, I would say that it's designed to work holistically. So the original work of art is a very important part of the experience and the remits or the intervention is a very part part of the experience, but they need each other to work. And really the power and the tension comes between the relationship between the two, that kind of invisible space in between. Right. And it's really those contrasting realities and I think there's something about augmented reality that can really help us experience the commentary in a way that somehow feels very, very real because we can, you know, literally explore that space. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to augment reality? I mean, I, I hear this term and I think, okay. Perez Swartwood and Rachel McCrindle 
In their paper, Augmented Reality Discovery and Information System for People with Memory Loss, AR merges computer-generated objects with real-world concepts in order to provide additional information to enhance a person's perception of the real world. Augmented reality is a technology whereby a user's view or vision of the real world is enhanced or augmented with additional information generated from a computer model. The enhancement may take the form of labels, 3D rendered models, or shading modifications. So reality suggests maybe that it's photographic or video-based, that maybe it's situated in your present time and space, but then what does it mean to augment it? Well, I think there's a lot of debate about what reality actually is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd define it as you defined it. But yeah, that, that would be an endless debate. Um, to augment it, I think uh, we need to look up the word augment in the dictionary, but you know, I kind of think of it as a layered reality so we're simply laying in the case of what we're doing we're laying on the digital layer on top of reality in order to change it or to alter it in in some way or to help us understand it and i think in a way that's what we're doing with reblink because in terms of helping us understand the original works um was that was part of the motivation why the project happened there were two motivations one was this was a creative artistic opportunity to create a new kind of storytelling or a new kind of artistic experience. But the other motiv motivation was to get people to stop and slow down and relate to the original works because as I was spending a lot of time in the gallery before, we, before, before the project happened, I would notice people walk through the gallery glance at paintings for a moment and just walk past. But occasionally they get their cell phone out, yeah, take a picture, not even look at the painting, and then walk past. And um, I think part of the problem is, especially with some of these older paintings, is there's very little in our own lives that we can relate to those paintings. And, and especially with younger audiences... It's like, well, that painting's got nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. And what we're actually doing with Reblink is pointing out the similarities with today, but also pointing out the differences, highlighting those things, and actually using that as a way to to help other people understand, help other people understand the relationship between now and then mm -hmm. as a way of a means of understanding the past, whether it's through contrast or similarity. I've I've read interviews that you've done for the project in the past and you emphasized, I think in every case, this experience you had in Toronto visiting the AGO as a kind of respite, a place to, to go and think and absorb the knowledge that these artworks that you were looking at had and you sat on the bench and you mm. spent time with the work, maybe attending to it, maybe not ignoring yeah. it, whatever, dream daydreaming. Yeah. But that what you saw were people ghosting by the works, as you said, you know, just spending a few seconds or taking a picture and moving on. Mm. And that to me, I mean, there, there's a kind of interesting, and this is, I don't know if you agree with the interpretation, but there's a sense of loss in the piece to me that's doubled in an interesting way. So it's not a utopian uh, piece by any means. It's the the imagery and the, the transformation of the original works tends to be a little towards the 
the darker side, um, maybe a little cynical. I'm glad you take it that way <laughs> because some people think it's a bit flippant and actually, you know, it's not. And the irony is that we're using the very technology. It's partly responsible for our um, right. that, that's what uh, I wanted quick to get consumption at. of media and, you know, with all of these devices and the Instagram generation, we consume images and media so quickly. And I think that's partly to blame for our lack of attention in art galleries and our lack of ability to be able to connect. And we wanted to try and turn it on its head somehow and to use a very technology that's partly responsible for that kind of negative thing. I don't know how to yeah. describe it. And actually use it as a way to get people to stop, slow down and explore. So, there, are, we, you know, I think that there's humour in some of the pieces combined with cynicism. I mean, a perfect one would be the Franz Howe portrait. Uh, Do you want to describe that one? Yeah, there's just this this dude in a painting from the 16th century just looking out. He, he always looked a bit cheeky to me. <laughs> and um, a very simple, beautiful painting. And um, especially with that one, I'd see a lot of people just walk up, snap a picture, and then walk away. And I thought, well... How would they like that? So what we've done is we've turned the tables and I, I, I call that piece the painting's revenge. So it's very simple. You hold up your device and then he's holding your device, his device up at you uh -huh. and he's taking pictures of you. So, and no matter where you go in the gallery, he's just following with his arm right. and snapping away at you. And we have some contemporary music played in a baroque uh with baroque instrument instrumentation we have um hotline bling hotline by bling. Dre, right, Dre. right Not, away you you hear this and you think ah oh, i know what this did is did you recognize it right away yeah uh, it was amazing played on harpsichord we got it played on harpsichord especially yeah that was a, a great touch and in fact we so, don't we don't know what drake thinks of it well yeah i don't know if he's he should he should get in touch <laughs> So when Kave and I were first going to go and see the uh, see the show, you emailed me and you said, make sure you have the right equipment. Like, give me a call and make sure you have the right equipment. So there was a sense I got and, um, that there's a way in which you want the work to be experienced and appreciated. And, and part of that maybe is the connection between the visuals and the sound. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fussy bastard and I, I try and force that on as many people whether it's making coffee or um, consuming art. Uh, or, Does technology make you more vulnerable to consuming art in ways that aren't how you intended you the artist? Uh, yeah I think it, yeah definitely I mean with a painting you can't really go that wrong I mean you could hang it in a completely inappropriate place. Like a dark room? In a dark room or in a toilet uh -huh. uh, which should have a different meaning hung in a palace wall right. or we know that where you place paintings will have a great influence on how you perceive them or how it's framed. With Digital, it gets a lot more complicated because, you know, we don't know what size people eat devices they have. Even in the gallery, they feel like people should turn down their sound, where actually the sound is a really important part of this. Mm -hmm. And we want people to turn their sound up or 
better still to wear headphones because otherwise it'd be like watching a movie with the sound down. I mean, the soundscapes are very important in there. And there's a lot of subtleties in the sound that we, you know, went through a lot of pain to implement. And uh, Hector Santino, who's a great technical lead, but also an artist in himself, you know, was very keen to put in as much kind of sense of three-dimensional sound mm-hmm. and create a sense of proximity as you move closer and further away from the paintings. But of course, the other thing is when you're looking at a painting, generally you might just stand in front of it, maybe take a couple of steps back, a couple of steps forward. But with Reblink, partly because we have a like a window that you can look through into another world, you're des- it's designed for you to explore mm-hmm. a lot more. So to look at look at things from different angles or to get right up close, but look at the edge of the painting, because there's things that you'll see that you won't see otherwise. But also, we have elements of the augmented reality that react to the proximity and the location of the user, thus creating, hopefully, creating a connection between uh, the visitor um, and the painting. So, for example, there's Krekov piece, which was a beautiful, pristine country landscape. And we wanted, or I wanted to do a piece on... um, all of the dodgy things that are happening with the environment, um, ranging from polluted water that can't really be drunk anymore mm-hmm. to um, dem- demolition of kind of beautiful village locations, um, the uh, pipeline. Um, so all of that is in the intervention, but there's also um, a man standing in a hazmat suit right in front of the painting, and he is supposed to kind of represent the kind of authority, you know, authority figure of the big corporation. Um, doesn't want you getting too close to the action of these buildings are being demolished and the pipeline has been installed. Um, so he will actually look at you wherever you are in the gallery. Uh, he'll follow you around uh, with his eyes. And as you get closer, he'll lift lift up his walkie-talkie and he'll... Uh, they're getting pro- they're getting closer over and talk about you as you move closer right. and um, he'll respond as you move further away and and closer still so we're creating that direct connection as a direct relationship um, so all of those things are completely out of the norm of a conventional viewing of a painting I guess mm-hmm. what do you think I mean again going back to this issue of this doubling of loss so the the stories tell something specifically about loss, but then the story's told through the agent of that loss, the, the cell phone, right? So if, if part of what's missing culturally is the time, the attention, you know, again, the impact of, of technology and modernity on the environment, then it's, it's this very window that the viewer is looking through that is what you're sort of speaking to. But... What does it catalyze? So it's a, you know, you could think about it in terms of the, a genre of dystopic video games or, or cyberpunk movies or things like that. But um, beyond the kind of traditions that maybe it's part of, what do, you, what do you want somebody to take away from Reblink? And maybe what kind of a relation back to the source, the original painting, do you think that the phone gives them? If, if the painting was being ignored before and now you're intervening on the process of seeing it then what happens 
I'm not sure if I understand the question. I guess I'm getting. Do you think that? Do you think it works? Do you think people? Do you think people notice the painting more, or do they notice oh. your? Oh, I see. Well, look, does that the, matter? Uh, it, <clears throat> I think some people get more carried away with the digital interventions and uh -huh. might not look at the paintings, but we did notice right from the beginning when we did the proof of concept is that people were looking at the paintings. They were comparing the two. Right. And I think that's, it's, again, it's the tension in between. It's that the magical relationship between the two things and it wouldn't it wouldn't have the impact if it was purely the the remits mm -hmm. i mean it would have a impact yeah. but it wouldn't have the impact because how things have changed from the original to the remits is the power of the piece of course there's an initial seduction with the bling if you like uh -huh. of the technology in uh, you know the uh, the newness of the technology but this really isn't, you know, this really goes beyond any kind of gimmick. It wasn't done for gimmick's sake. Mm -hmm. It was it was really done because it, initially it was a interesting way to tell stories and a new way to tell stories. And the fact that actually this could solve a problem for museums and galleries uh, and be a powerful tool for an engagement and outreach was kind of a secondary thing, but... Mm -hmm. I think was also partly the incentive for the AJ wanting to move ahead with it. Right. Well, this, this problem for galleries and museums is an interesting one. Maybe talk a little bit first about how you approached or started working with the AGO on this. Sure. I mean, um, I'd actually had a relationship with them because I did a previous project, but as a designer, uh -huh. um, which was a treasure hunt called Time Tremors, and we had some AR pieces in there, but it was really kind of scratching the surface of the potential of the medium, but it was still very compelling for kids. That gave me the idea to and that, and sitting there looking at these older pieces, thinking how different they were to, well, okay, it comes down to one piece, and it comes down to drawing lots, the, the wide... Yeah. Um, panoramic, beautiful. My favorite. Yeah. Intervention um, you did in that. In oh, okay. Set. So that was the that was the trigger piece because that was the one that I used to sit in front of, and as I was kind of having a bit of a breakdown <laughs> um, because of my chaotic city life and work <laughs> uh -huh. work time, it was it was a it was a hard time, and it was just so peaceful, and that's when everything kind of came together in my mind. Okay, well. My life's not peaceful like that, so mm -hmm. I'm connecting with this painting because of the contrast, so let's do a project that we can help other people connect with it because all these people are walking past. Mm -hmm. But there is also, you describe it as a kind of cynical, dystopian um, exhibition, which I'm actually really happy to hear you <laughs> say that because I think some people say, oh, you know, they're just having fun. And actually, it's doing both, uh -huh. and... I'm I'm not doing a Trump in the sense that, you know, augmented reality in that way. He augments <laughs> his reality all of the time. Uh -huh. um, but I'm not doing a Trump in the sense that, you know, looking back at the past, um, wasn't everything great back then? And now we're all screwed. Mm -hmm. Some of the pieces, I think, point out the good things about now. And there are some positive directions that we've gone in and uh and i'm actually 
I'd like to, despite all the horrible things that are going on in the world, I'm actually an optimist and uh, you just have to look at the history of humankind to realise that we are increasingly living in the most peaceful times that humans have ever lived in, uh-huh. despite all of the crap that's going on. Interesting. Sorry, I'm slightly diverting. No, no, no. I think, I think, the, I think that was exactly the question I asked. But previously, but you know, as well, yeah. Trump is an interesting one because what he does is just he lies and he augments his reality. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to do is get to maybe a greater truth or an updated truth of a previous reality. So this is how it was back then, and this is how it is now. Mm-hmm. Does it ask any questions about how things could be? Not consciously, but that would be great. Uh-huh. That's the next project. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to do something, would look into the future or speculate on the future. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, will happen if we don't change our ways or if we carry on with the way we're going. It's, yeah, it's another project. Actually, let's go. Let's do you want to do you want to describe a couple? Shall we describe a couple more of the pieces? I suppose, yeah. I mean, Kaveh, I don't know if you have any opinions, but I have a sense that you don't want to take away what somebody might discover in the gallery. But on the other hand, if they can't envision what the pieces look like, Let me give you, I'll give you one more description, which would be because I think we've only really described the selfie, the uh, photo guy. Yeah, I could talk about the visceration of a roebuck part of the European collection and it came to my attention quite a long time ago way before this project because I was just walking along the gallery and looking for paintings to go into this thing we were doing for kids this treasure hunt and I saw this painting of this couple at this table preparing this feast and on the table were these dead animals including this huge deer, this roebuck, and it was, looks at you directly in the eye and the man has got his hands over the deer and he's essentially opening up its stomach and you see this kind of guts <laughs> and blood and everything and it really was, my first reaction was that's really quite disgusting and is that appropriate? Uh, I had kids in mind too. <laughs> and huge, um, hugely symbolically loaded, if I, I understand. So so all of these cues that this was a wealthy couple, yeah. you know, at a particular place in time. I mean, mm. it, there's tons of stuff around them in addition to the, the, the Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a status symbol right. piece too. So, yeah, my immediate reaction was, that really, should they have this... So at a height that kids can see it and should this even be on display? And it was very, very narrow-minded reaction that I had. (laughs) And then it came to, you know, think of some ideas for Reblink and some interventions. And that that one stuck in my mind. And I slowly realized that it, it wasn't disgusting at all. It was very direct. Animals have to die and go through pain in order for us to eat them. And a lot of people I know can't eat meat unless it looks like it's not an animal. Or, you know, if you if it's got an eyeball in, it's kind of off-putting or, you know, even liver. And so much of our food these days is processed. So the intervention essentially reflects that. So when we lift up the device 
the reality comes in, the new reality crackles in. And we see the same couple and he's leaning over the deer, except now it's not a deer. It's a pile of bags, plastic shopping bags in the shape of a deer. So you have, instead of guts hanging out, you now have meat, processed meat Mm -hmm. hanging out. And you even have like sausages that are making the shape of the legs, um, reflecting the shape of the original roebuck and the antlers and ears of the roebuck are now reflected in the shape of the plastic bags um the lobster that was previously in shot is now in exactly the same lobster but now it's on the front of little cans (laughs) and the fruit is all now packaged with extra sugar and you know i went to find the worst possible representation of and modern day equivalents of these foods Mm -hmm. and you know, it's a sad case that everything is so, so very processed. And we're, I think as a result, we're so distant to the origins of where everything comes from. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of abstraction that it attests to, that, that distance between where food comes from. So there's still all of the plenty, mm. right? There's there's no There's no more plenty. There's, yeah, there's, there's more. Yeah, more waste. And yet it's less less. And all real. that all that plastic too. Yeah. And every time I go in there, they always offer, offer me bags or just give me bags. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of depressing. So I, I kind of see that, although it's a cynical piece, I see it as a positive piece because, you know, it's like it hopefully it gets people to think a little bit about yeah. not so much waste, but um, how far we've evolved that we're, so separated from I can't even put it into words I think the image puts it into better words than I can I mean one of the reasons again I'm interested in descriptions is of the work is because of the the gap between us and our listeners and then maybe the difference that people have in what they can do and how they perceive going to the gallery. So, you know, beyond describing the pieces, I'm curious if if we could talk a little bit about how one might open up access to reblink speculatively um, for people who maybe can't see it in the same yeah, way. Yeah, sure. Can. Well, we are working on a version of reblink that will, in theory, allow anyone in the world to experience it because currently you have to be in Toronto, Ontario at a specific date. I mean, the show has been extended four months, uh, which is good, but it still, it still doesn't give everyone a chance to go there and you also have to pay to get in. So yeah, there is an issue to do with accessibility and um, we want to, we, we want to get this out so as many people can see it as possible especially in you know remote communities of Ontario and schools and so forth. We know that although it's been hit with older generations and middle ages, I don't know if there's a term for them, and millennials, uh, it was a hit with, it was particularly a hit with kids. So we had a lot of um, school groups and teachers that have been in touch who have gone wild over it. I had this one email about this woman who took 300 of her students especially to see Reblink, and she'd never heard them talk about art in that way. Interesting. And they were getting really into the commentary between then and now, and that was such a delight to hear. So we want to try and make this available for all. Um, 
So we are creating a version where you can make a painting appear, the original painting appear in your living room or in a school room or anywhere. I mean, I did a version where I took a visceration of a roebuck, uh, the feast we call it, and we did that in in Metro which was the original source material. And that looked amazing in there. Metro, the grocery store. Yeah, they weren't very happy with me, but that's that's art. Um, <laughs> so with this, you the idea is you see, you can hang the painting on your wall, you can place the painting in, in your room, and you can walk up to the painting, and we, we're sticking a kind of educational lens on there, so uh, it will give you a commentary depending on which parts of the painting you're looking at, it knows which part of the painting you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And maybe we'll set challenges for the students. And you can walk up to it just like you can any painting, and it really does mimic or echo the real viewing experience of looking at a painting. Because, you know, if you're looking at, say, paintings from the Van Gogh Museum, the kind of best thing you have are books, and the printing quality is usually dodgy. Mm -hmm. And or you might look at it on the web page, but it's you know on a tiny little box. Whereas when you're looking at it on a tablet, you can it's like it's hanging in your room, and you can walk right up to it. You can even see the texture of the paint, uh, the 3Dness of the frame, and because we're doing reblink in this case, you can actually get the intervention triggered, and all you do is simply shake the device. And the interference comes up and the new reality seeps in and you can now see this three-dimensional space behind the frame and it's completely masked. So you can even walk around the frame and you'll see the back of the frame. But if you um, look through the frame, you see the three-dimensional reality. So we'll we'll post a couple of videos up just to give better illustration of what I'm talking about. Um, but the other thing that you can do, which you can't do at the AGO, is you can walk right up to the painting because obviously at the AGO you don't want people walking into million-dollar paintings. <laughs> it's not a good idea. Yep. But also they'd hit the wall as well. But in the case of uh, this version of Reblink, you can enter inside the painting. You can literally walk inside the room mm-hmm. of some of the pieces and look around and even go around corners and discover new things. Uh, So it's a kind of immersive augmented reality, a little bit like virtual reality, but it's augmented and virtual at the same time. It's still taking into account the space you're in in some way. Exactly. You you still have to worry about not walking into a wall, but if you have the right space, you can walk into the painting. Exactly. It's a little bit Alice looking through the looking glass. It's, Uh It's got that kind of feel to it. That's great. You know, just walking in from one from your own reality into another, and then you turn around and you can actually now see the reality that you left through the frame, but you're looking back the other way. Uh-huh. And you're you're actually inside the painting. So anyway, that's what we're working on. There's a lot of work to do. We're not quite sure how many we'll be able to do in um, that super kind of deluxe 3D, but um, we know that this, it it does feel very impactful. So this issue of access, I mean, it's interesting because you you immediately brought up the fact that we're really talking about all kinds of dimensions to access, you know, how how for somebody who can't be here uh, because they don't live in Toronto, uh, perhaps they can't easily get out of their house for one reason or another. So you've got to 
yeah. an option there. But I wonder uh, even with so even with the the reblink show, you know that this wasn't deli- particularly deliberate on our part. But there's we're we're dealing with a different type of accessibility because the whole world of art is kind of shrouded in quite a lot of intimidating mm-hmm. academic talk and especially with older works of art um we, we i was lucky enough to be invited on to q with tom power mm-hmm. and he he was saying to me after the broadcast that he used to hang around outside the ago because he didn't want to go in because he was intimidated by those old paintings it somehow would scare him because they seemed i don't know um intellectually intimidating yeah. in some way and he was dragged in to see Reblink and his whole perception changed because he realised, oh, that was just a different time. You know, we've got a similar set of <laughs> hang-ups now right. or, you know, we just we do things in slightly different ways. And not only was he able to experience the uh, original Reblink paintings and not be intimidated by them, but actually he said it changed his whole perception of old, old works of art. So I think there's something about reblink and the kind of popular the kind of having fun the use of the technology becomes a educational engagement experience without it being overly didactic and it can help people that wouldn't otherwise appreciate old works of art appreciate them mm-hmm. there's also a sense that it in some way personalizes the artwork, it brings it close to you. So I'm thinking, for example, of the um, the one in which you're actually prompted by Reblink to take a sort of selfie with um, with the characters in, the, yeah. in, in your intervention. Yeah, you can stand there and it will trigger a different sequence. And uh, yeah, and even that, it's it, that's kind of a viral piece. I mean, that was I don't think that one's particularly successful. I mean, it's it's okay. But the idea was that well, it works one of two ways. So there's a married couple, they're painted separately. And I found it incredibly sad that they were hung so close to each other, uh-huh. but they were still in separate Free. realities. Now, these people, we researched it, they loved each other. And there's one thing that technology does do, you know, when you point a device... People get together for that uh-huh. inevitable shot. So we kind of saw it as a way of kind of reuniting this couple. So, you know, the man would get up and join the woman and pose for that photograph. But the other thing that happens is if you're standing in the middle, this piece gets a little bit more cynical. If you're standing in the middle, we have this technology that um, Hector coded that tells that someone's standing there. And it triggers all of the Reblink characters to come and pose with you. Uh-huh. And you hear the, oh, Canada, because it's Canada 150. Right. And, you know, the boys waving the flag <laughs> and everyone's having fun. And you take the picture and then the music screeches to a stop. The flag falls to the ground and all the crowd just disappears. And it's kind of a, a bit of a commentary on, you know, kind of standing on ceremony or or the kind of superficiality of that kind of camera uh-huh. moment, camera opportunity moment. And, you know, as soon as the camera, the picture's taken, smiles fall and reality is going to change. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was a means of inserting yourself in the picture and having that 
sent out to other people. But it didn't quite work out. Maybe I'll tell you a story about my favorite visit to the AGO, and we'll, we'll see where it goes because there's there's maybe some things related to Reblink here. And was the big Jack Chambers retrospective was in town. Jack Chambers is a Canadian artist from London, Ontario, who was a filmmaker, a photographer, and a and a absolutely incredible realist painter. And um, I went with my friend Jenison Assumption, who's blind, well-known in the accessibility world uh, in terms of looking at how to make technology more accessible for people with visual impairments, and my wife Darcy and my co-worker Michelle D'Souza here at the IDRC. And the four of us went and had to had to go through a process of working with Jenison and describing the pieces as we stood in front of them. What did we see? And something really interesting happened, which was kind of at the nexus between conversation, interpretation, and description. Mm. So, you know, we'd, we'd stand in front of a new painting and someone would hazard a description, just a literal, oh, look, it's a tree. It's a big tree. It's a beach scene nearby. Um, you know, the tree is really green and filled with, you know, radiant yellow sunlight. And you sort of describe what you saw. Objectively. And objectively. Yeah. Or maybe you'd say, oh, it looks like it looks like they're unhappy in this scene. Something's happening here. And then Jenison, you know, absorbing different people's perspectives. And very quickly, especially once you got comfortable with what it meant mm. to describe a work to somebody who had all the energy of being in front of it but couldn't actually see it. Yeah. Um, then, you know, it became a kind of description network where, you know, one person had this observation, another person said, oh, but look at that. Mm -hmm. And there was a sense of the kind of discovery or the surprise mm -hmm. that, I, that I think is one thing that augmented reality does really well and that I I saw in, in Reblink a lot, which is that, you know, you're kind of – kind of surprise and you, you discover something that isn't there. It's it's again in that like in between space mm. and you're like, oh this is this is wonderful. And so Jenison would then, you know, interpret our descriptions. And he'd say, Well I think what you're saying is that these people are like this. Or, you know, maybe it'd be a compositional description. So it's like there's a lot of triangles in here and it's really bright colors. And you know, um and, and so there became this kind of like other layer to the painting, which was purely visual. I mean, these are these are gorgeous visual experiences, big in many cases that you stand yeah. in front of and you just wonder at them. And yet there was this whole other network of descriptions and conversations and interpretations that made Jack Chambers' work even more interesting for all of us. Yeah, because you were having to talk about it at a conscious level and then start drilling down into the meaning on the fly I the I, meaning how it felt to I, you so I kind I, of I kind of had a picture of you lying on the couch uh, with a psychiatrist <laughs> talking about your dreams and uh, Freud is trying to make sense of your or someone is trying to make sense of your dreams and and help give them the context or, or meaning and yeah and then to, to then interpret the dreams as they're interpreted back to you Right, because yeah. Jenison would would often basically say, okay, well, here's what I think I'm hearing, and then that would give you another perspective on the work. It's very interesting because we, uh, 
you know, we we see reblink as one kind of augmented experience, but we we think there's plenty of other experiences. We call them lenses, uh, different types of lenses, which, which should give you different types of experiences in front of whatever you're standing in front of. In this case, a painting. And one of the lenses that we really want to do at some point is something that can capture all of these conversations that otherwise get lost in the ether mm-hmm. and also let you contribute to them. Yeah, you, you hear people talk about paintings in a very interesting way and, you know, is there, is there a way of somehow capturing that in, a, in AR uh, without it turning into a bitch fest that you might have on YouTube? The complaining or the didactics, you know, there's something like like... You know, it's one experience to go stand in front of a painting with a, a gallery education uh, person mm. or a, even a curator who has their interpretation. And, mm. you know, my uncle's a, a curator at the Museum of History, and I was there recently, and he gave us a wonderful tour with all of the history of how the mm. exhibit was made and, you know, the what, you know, his his view on the pieces and the art historical connections yeah. and these kinds of things. That's, that's one lens or mode that you want to work in, but maybe you just want to soak in the color maybe you want to think about how it made people feel over the yeah. over the years relative to how you feel these you want to hear what a six-year-old kid thinks of it yeah which is the opposite of a <laughs> historian you know it's right. pure innocent perception we we did a project quite a while ago now it was when the iphone and, and the first android device were mm. were pretty new um where the collection was available to somebody with a, a personal device, but then they could they could look at you know the official description and interpretation of the work. They could add their own um, through audio recordings or text, and they could then make their own kind of personal collections to take home with them. And yeah. teachers really liked this because it let the students wander through the gallery, but still have to be you know collecting or or uh, making note of things that they would then you know, yeah. do in their, in their work in the classroom. But the challenge is of how do you make it fair and moderated and, um, you know, how do you try to draw out the richness? Can mm-hmm. you let people take photographic interpretations or record yeah. their own stories or make a video of the work? I think AR has the ability to facilitate quite a few of those things, but you're still going to have a lot of those challenges that you described. We were We were looking at, you know, capturing those conversations, but the other things... We were looking at were um, emotional responses uh, to paintings and actually have people literally lay out their emotions in AR visuals around the painting. So, so they'd have they... like a toolkit of emotional yeah. like, symbols or we were, something? Yeah, we were, and we're still working on it we're, and it's a little bit on the back burner, but we, you know, we, we have, um, if someone's response to a painting is that they love it or it makes them feel these emotions then we somehow convey those emotions in elements that they can leave in the space in AR mm-hmm. and then you can quickly swipe all of that off and see the next person's emotional response as well as a ri- uh, ability for them to write a little bit about why they feel the way they feel mm-hmm. we were working with things like glitter and sun rays and um, thunderclouds mm. and quite beautiful imagery. But we haven't quite had the chance to really test it 
in a sense, this might be people if, – if you've remixed the original artists, then there's a layer in which people are remixing or augmenting or adding to. Oh, yeah. And we'd, lo we'd love to uh, have a, the ability for other people to leave their own interpretations. I mean, that, you know, their own responses. Reminds me of a question I've been meaning to ask. Is there a, an ethics of remixing? Um, well, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, you, you said earlier on about you allow people to get personal. Well, really, all of these remixes or interventions, they're, they're actually my interpretations. They're not everyone else's interpretations. They're my reinterpretations. And other people may not agree with what I've done, but, but they wouldn't agree with what every single artist has done. You know, I'm just working as an artist, but in response to another painting. So it is very much my my perception um, and my picture of uh, my response. Um, and other people may um, respond in completely different ways, which is why we'd like to facilitate that at some point. In terms of ethics, there's no written guidebook. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is that for every single piece, you know, the responses came from a place of love. All of the artists have been dead for a significant amount of time. Does that make a difference whether they're here well, or Well, from a copyright perspective, it does. Right. So it's easier to deal with dead artists um, that have been dead for longer than 60 years or something. And it's a little bit weird walking around the gallery going, I hope it's been they've, she or he's been dead for long <laughs> enough. But you need them to be dead because it makes things a lot easier than the copyright is not an issue. But mm -hmm. I think people would argue different ways. So some people would, would say, well, who are you to come and change a person's work without their permission? Well, actually, I'm not changing it. I'm, I'm putting something next to it that is changed. And you don't need to look at it, but it's an intervention. This fits very much within the intervention mould. But it does come from a place of love, so... With every single piece, I think you'll agree, it doesn't look, they don't look like cheap computer games. It's hard, it's really hard to create a deep aesthetic mm -hmm. using 3D graphics and simulation of a, a painting. But I think we've done a relatively decent job and we've put a lot of love and labour into getting those paintings at the highest possible aesthetic quality that we could. And... I'd like to think that if I was a dead artist, you know, and people were forgetting about me or they were just walking past the painting, that there was someone there doing an intervention or my interventions that were actually getting people to stop, slow down and look at my work again. So I see it as though I'm, well, I'm not really helping them out deliberately, but <laughs> by default, you know, I'm hopefully getting people to stop and reconsider these works. So I, for me, there's so many more arguments to do it than not to do it. And I'm hoping that we're giving longevity to these artists' voices. Mm -hmm. And maybe that will happen one day. Maybe we'll, we'll have the, the intervention of the intervention to the, in, to the original painting. Uh -huh. And it will just go on forever. I mean, I guess one of the challenges working with technology is how you keep 
works that are situated on particular devices and APIs and oh. versions of operating systems alive. So yeah, well, that's another <laughs> bloody nightmare. Paint is pretty good to yeah. last a century. Yeah, know. well, I, someone was asking about an uh, old project I did, Ceremony of Innocence. and um, That's the one with Peter Gabriel? Yeah, and, uh, and so where, where can I get it from? You get it on Amazon. You can buy it on for... Hundred American US dollars on Amazon, and that looked like it was maybe a shockwave or early flash yeah. project. It was worse than that. It was director, okay. and yeah. and you can't play it. You can buy it for hundred bucks, but you can't play it on anything. Yeah. Do you mind that 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 piece is gone essentially? I've got videos of it, and yes, but also it would just frustrate me because although I think it stood the test of time quite well. It doesn't look as original now as it was back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was very original back then, and and now there's, you know, it feels that everything was done for a, ti- a computer that has tiny processor, and everything had to fit onto a tiny little disc. And I think it worked really well considering what we managed to do for the technology. But now it just looks maybe not so much dated, but like if you made it now, it could be so much better and mm-hmm. so much richer. So I'm kind of glad that it's almost lost in time. <laughs> so are there, um, you know, n- no artist is working alone. Are there games, video games that are influential or other other artists? I, th- the reason I ask is, is because I think, you know, your work functions as much in the culture of extended gaming and cinema as as it does in terms of a, a gallery or a, a painting environment. So is, is that interesting to you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I don't know if there'd be any one particular influence. There's probably a number of different influences ranging from my dad, who is a very eccentric artist, stroke philosopher, stroke inventor, stroke... He just does lots of strange creative things and, and doesn't abide by any rules not just with his art and in life. I think, so, you know, it's about not rebelling, but just ignoring the rules. And that's how you get different results, partly. Um, He used to also read us a lot of Alice in Wonderland. And I always thought that the ability of digital technology allowed you to do things that you just can't do in reality. For example, step into another world or into Mm -hmm. a painting, into another reality. And uh, it's always been a, big influence on on my work in terms of this particular show i think i guess i have been influenced by some surrealists like marguerite Dwayne michaels a photographer Mm -hmm. Um, beautiful beautiful work i mean he's really an artist that happens to take photographs and he tells stories through sequential photographs so you know, within six frames, he may tell a very beautiful, elegant story. And in, in, in a similar way, that's how we blink functions. We The first part of the story is the painting, and the second part of the story is the remix. Mm-hmm. At the time, GIFs were very getting very popular, and the GIFs have become a kind of realm of, of themselves, mm-hmm. or a kind of genre. They're not quite... They're art pieces, but they don't have to be art pieces. They can be animation, but they don't have to be animation. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be very dark, and they can very they can be very political. You know, I think those are also on my mind at the time, and and some of them can be very powerful. I mean, I, I would say criticism of Reblink. Well, it's not really criticism, but they don't have to be highly complex three D environments. I mean, one of them 
is very simple. It's the one with the kids watching TV, and really, um, you, I've just I've swapped one two D image for another two D image. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of animates, but I think the message and the power of a message isn't necessarily dependent on highly technological solutions. So, for example, when you're reading a book, you know, within four or five pages, you could have gone through four or five different emotions. You could be yeah. really sad one moment and elated and next and then angry. And the technology, and it is technology, the technology of a book is, is very, very simple. For sure. And uh, nowadays we, you know, we, we call technology things that, we tend to call things technology when they don't quite work all of the time, like a bike and a book, they're technology, but they kind of work most of the time. So we don't call them technology, whereas our computers or this recording system that we have here doesn't work all the time. So we call it technology. That's my theory. <laughs> Anything else? I'm good. Sorry to uh, talk so much. No, no, it was great. Thank you very much. It was the ninth episode of Quantization. We want to thank Alex and Colin for accepting our invitation and all of you for listening to our podcast. A special thanks to Marshall Bureau, who composed all the scores for quantization. You're really good. You should do this. You should do uh, weekly podcasts. I'll leave the podcasting to Kaveh, but um, I suggested that a theme of podcasts on art and inclusion would be great. That was our announcement. We teamed up with Colleen to produce a series of episodes on art and inclusion. Tune in for more information. For more episodes, more information, and the full transcripts, please check out our website, quantization.ca, and come back for upcoming episodes. Tschüss. Podcast.